You're listening to Conversation Balloons, interviews with experts and friends about how the generations can help each other thrive. I'm your host, Leah Farish. Check out this episode. Today we welcome Dr. Ken Finn to our little studio. He has been practicing pain medicine in Colorado Springs since 1994. He's board certified in physical medicine and rehabilitation, pain medicine, and pain management. He is president of the American Board of Pain Medicine and has served on their exam council for 20 years. He has served on the governor's uh, task force in Colorado uh, regarding legalizing marijuana for recreational use and on other task forces and work groups. He's testified to the Canadian Senate on their marijuana bill, and he speaks internationally, including being an invited speaker to the Mayo Clinic, Jacksonville, the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland, UCLA's VA Medical Center, and the Texas Medical Society. Dr. Finn is editor of Cannabis in Medicine, an evidence-based approach that was in 2020 and uh, currently the uh, co-vice president uh, in 2021 of the International Academy on the Science and Impacts of Cannabis. And uh, we're just delighted to be able to talk to such an authoritative expert in this field. Dr. Finn, thank you so much for coming to Conversation Balloons. Thank you, Leah, for having me. I'm more than happy to be a resource for you. Well, I would like to know, since you have been practicing pain medicine, pain management in Colorado before legalization and after, what changes have you seen in your patient population and the general population since it was legalized? Well, from the, the reason I went down this road is because I am a pain medicine physician. I mean, we are in the midst of an opioid epidemic. Uh, and what I saw over time is that patients were coming to my office taking very high doses of narcotic medication or opioids. They were reporting very high levels of pain, uh, eight to 10 out of 10 being the worst pain. And they were using marijuana for their pain or reportedly for their pain. So it didn't make any clinical sense to me that anything was really helping their pain. Uh, but one of the platforms to legalize is it's going to help our opioid drug, epi uh, drug epidemic and opioid crisis. So based on that information, I started doing a lot of research on my own and reading and then ended up doing the activities that I've been very involved with. But what I've, I haven't really seen too much change in my patient population because when I you know, I think what has happened after we had medical marijuana back in 2001 is when it was implemented, and it sat, it sat silent and dormant for many years until we had, for lack of a better term, de facto legalization in 2009 when the dispensaries opened all over the place. And so then patients started having more open conversations with me about their use. And because it was touted as an opioid substitute and the patients that were using both, I asked them, I said, Would, well, if it's that great of a pain reliever, let's take you off your opioids and just use your marijuana. And most, the vast majority were like, well, no, 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 I don't, I don't want that. And I would ask them, well, why not? I said, doesn't the marijuana help with your pain? And at the end of the day, most of them say, no, it really doesn't help my pain. It makes me 
sleepy or not care that I have pain. And so I gave them a choice. I said, either go with your marijuana or go with what I know better and opioids and we can work on tapering you or using, you know, medication assisted treatment for your chronic opioid use, et cetera. Uh, so I found it very interesting that the pain patients that were using marijuana were telling me that it really isn't an effective analgesic and it's not an opioid substitute, which is very consistent with the medical literature. Uh, there hasn't been any data to support, and, and it's important for listeners to, to realize there's a difference between a cannabis-based medication and medical cannabis uh, and the dispensary cannabis, because the stuff coming out of the dispensaries are terribly regulated, poorly controlled, frequently contaminated, and completely unproven. Um, whereas the cannabis-based medications that we've had for many, many years actually might be better for those patients in pain based on the scientific literature. But at the end of the day, what everybody is using is stuff they purchase at the dispensaries, which has never been proven as an effective pain reliever or an opioid substitute. And um, I believe you published something just recently showing that actually where uh, in jurisdictions where marijuana is legalized, you have increased opioid use and abuse, right? Uh, well, actually, we have in states that have um, legalized, legalized marijuana for both medical and recreational purposes, the opioid death rates are higher in those states than the ones that don't have medical or recreational marijuana. Um, because way back about eight years ago, the data was coming out and that was the platform to legalize was it's going to help our drug crisis. We have people dying from opioid overdoses. Um, but the subsequent data, uh, even the, the National Academy's paper that's frequently uh, reported as the, the, the gold standard paper, they did not look at dispensary cannabis. But the data since then, I think Chelsea Shover and Keith Humphreys showed in about 2018 that states that had medical marijuana laws had higher drug overdoses. And then our paper that came out earlier this year uh, showed that states, you know, we looked at state by state, uh, those states that have medical and recreational programs had higher drug death rates. Um, and, and just, I looked this morning, the, the American Medical Association had a paper looking at, yes, prescriptions are on the decline, because I think most providers at this point are very well aware of our drug op epidemic, uh, but our opioid deaths continue to rise. And that's really attributed to the illicit fentanyl that's flooding uh, the markets. Do the um, uses of medical marijuana um, correspond to other recreational drugs? Do people that use um, marijuana also use um, hallucin hallucinogens and, and other things? Um, or are they just seeking uh, pain management or mood management? You know, I think all of these, any medication that is centrally acting and potentially addicting, they all play very well together in the sandbox. Uh, there's, a, a, there's a debate uh, whether or not cannabis is a gateway drug. I personally think it is. Uh, there's plenty of data showing that uh, early onset of use of cannabinoids 
especially particularly in the uh, not only the adult population but in the adolescent population, they have a higher risk of developing opioid use disorder. The addiction rate is the same in the young adolescent population to marijuana and opioids, but three years later, the addiction rate is nearly twice as high for marijuana compared to opioids in that young adolescent age population. And I was very surprised at that data, and that was from JAMA Pediatrics. This is a very well-respected medical journal. Um, That data came out a couple of years ago showing that marijuana has a significantly higher incidence of addiction compared to opioids in the young developing brain. And all of the subsequent data is showing uh, that cannabis users tend to have a higher incidence of opioid use disorder and opioid misuse about three years later. So I do believe that there is a gateway component uh, to the use of cannabis, particularly in uh, early onset use. Well, just psychologically, isn't there something about giving your locus of control over to a pill or some kind of substance um, rather than trying to address reality and manage your emotions with things that are within your bodily control and that you can take responsibility for. Yeah, and you can argue that with any any substance of addiction, and you can also argue that with with kind of big pharma and the uh, the the mind altering, mood altering medications that are available through from the insurance companies and the pharmaceutical companies. You know, especially in the young population. I mean, they do recommend proceeding with caution with antidepressants in somebody that's under the age of 21 or 25. So yes, I think especially that's the most vulnerable population because of the brain development, um, particularly in the young adolescents. Um, you know, you really, the, the, if you delay onset of use of any substance, you're probably going to fare better uh, in the future. I mean, we already have three legal drugs now Uh, opioids, tobacco, and alcohol. And we know that we've done an absolutely terrible job in terms of societal effects and impacts. And now we're simply adding another addiction for profit industry into the mix, uh, touted as a a medical, um, you know, breakthrough. Um, But the problem is that, you know, the arguments that I get into in the debates are, well, marijuana has been around for thousands of years. They found it in the Chinese pharmacopoeia. They've seen it in Peruvian mummies and Egyptian mummies. Well, yeah, the potency of these products um, don't exist anymore. I mean, the, the potency of TH, the THC content in those products was probably 2 to 4% THC. And that, that has been referred to as God's plant, as somebody um, termed it to me in a debate. And I told my response was, well, God's plant doesn't exist anymore. I mean, here in Colorado, the average smoke flower is about 17 to 20%. Uh, we have concentrates that are available at 40 to 60% THC. And I don't know if anybody's heard of uh, dabs, waxes, and shatters. I don't know if you've heard of that before. Uh, but those are pushing 85, mm-hmm. 90, some claiming 100% purified THC that doesn't look like a, a five-leafed plant or flower. It looks like crystal meth. It, it's a crystallized form of THC, extremely potent, frequently contaminated, uh, with things like butane, um, pesticides, fungicides, uh, et cetera. And those are readily available in Colorado in both the medical and recreational markets and in other states that are going down this pathway. 
why would an industry refine uh, something to increase its potency when you'd think they'd want to just sell more product? I mean, you know, <laughs> Cheerios hasn't made, you know, turbo Cheerios that you only need to take eat three Cheerios. I mean, is there any other reason but wanting to create a tremendous uh, addiction and impact on somebody's body? It's addiction for profit and money. Period. It's all about the money. If you any mm-hmm. article you read on states going down the marijuana road, there's always this promise that they're going to make millions, if not billions, of dollars in revenue. Uh, and my response to that is, mm-hmm. I honestly feel that some state leaders can't spell P and L or profit and loss. They always talk about the profit. They never talk about the losses associated with these types of industries. I published a paper uh, several years ago that one mid-sized hospital in my community lost $20 million just from marijuana-related emergency room visits. And hypothetically, if you take that across the state, because we have 25 emergency rooms in Colorado, that was a half a billion dollar loss financially in a six-year period. So on average, about $83 million a year across the state of Colorado just from marijuana-related emergency room visits. Well, and that's that's not um, the traffic deaths, accidents, workplace injuries. Uh, law enforcement. Uh, in, we, we, I don't think we're going to have time for to discuss the environmental impacts. I believe you're right. located in Oklahoma. Right. Is that correct? And Oklahoma is a very um, rural um, you know, agricultural community. Uh, Oklahoma is now trying to become the uh, number one market for illicit marijuana in terms of diversion across the country. Uh, they're competing with Oregon for, uh, you know, the the black market marijuana. Uh, and, you know, even the, even the state of Oregon that has had very robust medical and recreational programs for many, many years, they audited their uh, marijuana program three years ago in 2019. So the state of Oregon in 2019 concluded that they only were able to investigate 3% of dispensaries or stores and one-third of growers for compliance. To me, that's a huge fail. Uh, And they concluded that they can't guarantee that the test results were reliable, and they also concluded that they could not guarantee that the products were even safe for human consumption, but on they go. Uh, And Oregon and Northern California are one of the biggest producers of black market marijuana in the country, but Oklahoma is trying to compete with them to be a bigger illicit market. I hate to think of the environmental impact. No, and I think well, well, if you if you well, a couple of things along that that vein is number one, the farm bill has created an absolute disaster. Uh, number one, uh, they are mass producing CBD from hemp, uh, and then I don't know what the rules are in Oklahoma off the top of my head, but every state is different. But you can mass produce CBD or cannabidiol from hemp and then with a a matter of chemical manipulation, create what are called isomers. But they do have the same psychoactive effect, some stronger than others. But you can also make something called THCO, which, by the way, was weaponized by the U.S. military in the 1940s as a chemical warfare, warfare agent because it eroded the muscle coordination of dogs twice as fast and twice as much as conventional Delta-9 THC. 
Uh, then you have the HHCs, which is heterohydrocannabinol. You have the THCPs, that, and these are being found in schools in different parts of the country. Uh, the THCP has 30 times affinity to the, the cannabinoid 1 receptor than Delta 9. So it is very, very potent. Uh, but some states like Texas, and I don't know what the rules are in Oklahoma, based on the farm bill, you can find these products in gas stations and grocery stores, the Delta 8s, Oh, my gosh. I, I'm gonna give, I can give you a lot of, I didn't know that. I, I, I get this every time I discuss this issue because this was not a career choice of mine to be an expert in, in cannabis. But here I am, and I unfortunately know more than the average bear. And I, I always tell people I, I hope I'm wrong at the end of the day with some of the things that I discuss, but so far I haven't been wrong because if I'm wrong, I'll just crawl under a rock and disappear and everybody will forget me. But if I'm right, we have a huge public health and safety threat in our hands and it's not coming. It's already here in my mind. Well, and we're doing it voluntarily. We're, we're embracing it. And uh, in the name of two things that are that like the least legitimate justification, recreation and money. Uh, that that's a serious um, thing to put in the balance against the health and safety of especially our kids. It's also under the guise of medicine. Um, I mean, people are medicinalizing the recreational use. I mean, some of the data that's come out has shown that medical marijuana patients use their product medically only 20% of the time and recreationally 80% of the time. And just... Uh, as disclosure, based on my experience with my patients, I wanted to know what, how easy was it to get a medical marijuana card here in Colorado? And so I applied for one a couple of years ago, and I was approved in a minute, 60 seconds to get my medical marijuana card. Uh, they didn't ask for medical records or MRI review or even look at the scars on my knees from my prior surgeries. Uh, and, I, and they never even asked me my level of pain, which on a day-to-day -day basis is about one, zero to two on a 10 scale. Uh, tolerable, manageable generally, uh, but I was approved for severe pain in one minute. Wow. Well, let's talk about, because our show is, is about the generations, I specifically want to hear from you about the effect on uh, the preborn, infants, children, teens. So um, are you seeing more exposure to THC in uh, babies being born in Colorado? Yes, there's data that has come out um, that the, 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 um, the drug-related births, you know, methamphetamine is a big problem, uh, and that's been on the rise. And THC positivity in newborns has been on the rise in Colorado over the past several years. And we already know that it's bad for the developing brain when you're outside the womb. And we also know that it's bad for the developing brain inside the womb. So there was a study that came out several years ago that showed 70% of the marijuana dispensaries were actually recommending women use during the first trimester of pregnancy, which is a very critical brain development. And they surveyed over 400 dispensaries. And so the people that are working at these dispensaries have no medical training whatsoever or requirements. So they can't talk to women about product and, you know, uh, and pregnancy or pre lactation. I mean, it, we know it crosses the, the blood brain barrier. We know it crosses the placenta. We know it's found in breast milk for weeks after cessation. 
because it's fat soluble. It ends up in the fatty tissues like breast milk. Uh, so, and we know there was a study out of Canada a couple of years ago looking at children that were exposed in utero um, and no other substances, this, this marijuana only, THC only. And they followed these children to middle childhood, so between nine and 11 years old. And these children were compared to the ones that were not exposed in utero, had a higher incidence of behavior problems. They actually were reporting psychotic-like episodes in these young children. So that to me was a very frightening paper. So I actually did a, a literature search looking at, well, you know, women who are pregnant do, you know, they can do a lot of things. They can smoke cigarettes, drink alcohol, maybe do other illicit substances like cocaine or heroin. And I try to see, was there any reports or studies on children that were exposed to those other substances that were demonstrating psychotic-like behaviors in middle childhood? And I couldn't find anything. And we know that cannabis psychosis is a real thing. Uh, it can trigger psychosis. And some of these um, episodes of violence or even mass shootings have been shown to have a, an underlying link to cannabis use. So for, one example was Ian David Long in California, who shot up 14 people at a bar in Thousand Oaks, California, or Ventura, California. Uh, and his, I have his toxicology report, and there was only one substance in his system that was THC. So he, you know, a little cuckoo and yeah, killed a bunch um, of people. It seems like the general population, the general impression I get from the media is that cannabis calms people down, uh, but actually it <clears throat> contributes to anxiety and aggression and paranoia, um, and it it doesn't have the the effect that people think they're getting from it. It doesn't even have necessarily have the effect of uh, reducing nausea in pregnant women. Sometimes apparently uh, it can actually stimulate nausea in some pregnant women. Well, it can stimulate nausea in a lot of people. I mean, there's a condition called cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. Uh, they actually have a, they actually have a Facebook page called recovery from cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome that has over 16,000 followers. And I'm, I'm a member of that group and I read some of these stories of the what, what the suffering that these people are going through because of their cannabis use. Uh, and it's only related to the cannabinoid use. It's not um, because they have any other problems, but there's actually a Facebook page dedicated to this. And if you look at another, another healthcare cost, I mean, the, it, a, a friend of mine or colleague is an emergency room physician in, down in Pueblo, and she looked at the numbers to to manage or evaluate somebody in the emergency room with cannabinoid hyperemesis costs about sixty five hundred dollars mm -hmm. per person, right? So if you had um, sixty five hundred dollars for one person, and we have twenty five emergency rooms in the state of Colorado, that's a cost of one hundred sixty two thousand mm. dollars a day, right? And if you have three hundred sixty five um, days in a year. And that would be a cost of $59 million just for cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, allowing one of those patients per one ER in Colorado per day. My colleagues here in Colorado are telling me they are seeing between 
two to three cannabinoid hyperemesis patients per doctor per shift in one hospital. So the, the numbers become astronomical wow. in terms of healthcare costs. Again, another, another profit and loss, look at the, um, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the P&L. You know, yeah, you're going to make a lot of money, but what are, your, what are the offsets? I mean, there was a paper in Colorado here a few years ago said that for every dollar generated, it costs four fifty to regulate. So I, I don't know if I truly believe the four fifty, but I can tell you it's not a money maker. It's probably a money loser. Um, but circling back to the violence, so I was just reading a paper this morning about the association between cannabis use and physical violence in use. So there's definitely a, a moderate association between the use of cannabis mm. and physical violence um, in the adolescent population. Yeah, well, l- well let's. Let's circle back a little bit more to the the infants first, and we'll, we'll work our way up. So let's say we have an infant born THC exposed. Would you say you you said what twelve to fifteen percent of your population now the the babies being born have THC in their system? Uh, no, I did not say that. I don't remember. I don't know what the actual percentage is. I can all I can tell you is that the number of positive babies being born for THC has uh-huh. been on the increase. Okay. And so uh, do um, people just expect that, okay, well, I, I got my baby exposed while I was pregnant, but, you know, it'll wear off and uh, that's temporary and babies are resilient and they'll be fine. Is Is that true? Does the effect of the THC go away if the child isn't continued, doesn't continue to be exposed? No, like I said, these, this, the, this data for children exposed in utero followed to middle childhood. So you're looking 10 years later are showing these uh-huh. behavior problems. And so these, these changes. And those are children that weren't, weren't exposed in the household Correct. Since then? No, they were expo- exposed in utero. There's no other exposures. There's no other use. Um, and 10 years later, they are having problems compared to the ones that were not exposed in utero. And do they have uh, just cognitive development issues also? They, they have um, reduced um, IQ. Yes, they have cognitive issues. They have behavior issues. They're lashing out. They're, um, you know, there is a link. Uh, an association, uh, Dr. Reese from Australia published a paper that medical marijuana states had higher incidences of autism, which is somewhat concerning. Um, so uh, yeah, a 23% higher incidence rate. And it's sometimes it's not just the, the mom. I mean, there's a, a, a doc, I can't remember who the woman was from Duke University published a paper, a rat study that the, the parental or father use of cannabis altered the autism gene and may have a, an, a play into the, the development of autism after birth. So uh, this exposure in utero not, is, is not just the, the, the maternal problem, it could be also a paternal problem. And then I, I heard a, a, a pediatrician testify that these children exhibit uh, memory loss, uh, short-term memory problems. Uh, spatial uh, reasoning and uh, um, other 
deficits yes. when they were exposed. Yep, that is true. And also they have um, evidence of drug-seeking behavior down the road. I think some of the, some of the rat studies showed that um, rats that were exposed in utero had a higher propensity to hit the heroin button uh, compared to the ones that were not exposed to cannabis. Uh, it kind of primes the pump so to speak, on, on drug-seeking behavior, because the, the drug reward center, uh, which is modified by a chemical called dopamine, uh, is at kind of the central part of uh, any of these substances, like opioids and cannabinoids, et cetera. Um, but what they're, all, what they're finding in both animal and human studies, that down the road, they are going to have a higher incidence of drug-seeking behavior compared to ones that were not exposed. Oh, my. So we're really putting these children at a disadvantage even before birth. Absolutely. And so let's say a child isn't exposed in utero, but uh, one thing I've heard a couple of teachers tell me here um, is that as they uh, receive the children at being dropped off at their public school here in Tulsa. The wave of marijuana smoke comes out. The children come, arrive at school smelling like marijuana in the morning. They, when they um, escort the child to the car in the afternoon, they have to put the child in a car that smells like dope. And uh, they know these children are being exposed in the home, in the car. And um, what might be going on there? What do the studies show? I think we're in uncharted waters. We don't know what's going to be the short and long-term impacts of that. I think some of the studies have shown there can be some level of impairment when with secondhand smoke, for example. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing the same thing here in Colorado. Some of my patients are uh, school, they're educators, they're teachers, administrators, and they are seeing this in the schools here as well, that I don't know if you've heard of something called hot boxing, but, you know, and especially in Oklahoma, which might be hotter than here in Colorado, but they'll roll up the windows. So there's no side smoke going out the window and they're smoking marijuana in the car and there's no ventilation. And these kids are getting exposed to secondhand smoke. We do know in animal studies that there can be impairment. Uh, we are also seeing in Colorado, I don't know what's happening in Oklahoma, because uh, I do some work with schools here, and they are seeing even in elementary school, you're talking second, third, and fourth graders opening up their lunchbox. It reeks of marijuana. Uh, there is an unused, I mean, there's a used, unclean marijuana container in it that has candy in it. Uh, and so they <laughs> suspect that these children are being self-diagnosed and treated with edibles at school. Uh, but the law here in Colorado is they cannot confiscate. Uh, so they are like, well, Johnny falls asleep after lunch because he eats his little candy that he got there and he's not learning anything. Uh, they can only suspect that parents are, are giving their kids edibles at school to treat whatever that, their ADHD or, or what have you. Oh, my goodness. Are there legal impediments to, to studying uh, marijuana because it's not? fully legalized uh, under federal law? That, that's a yes and no answer. I mean, if you go to clinicaltrials.gov and you put in marijuana, you are going to see that there have been over 30,000 
articles on marijuana. So it's been studied a lot. Uh, given its, its um, Schedule One status, that it's federally illegal, uh, no medical use, it, it makes it, I think, more difficult to study. I think you have to go through more avenues and channels uh, to study the actual plant. Uh, so, and that was part of my my time on the on the governor's task force. Here was we actually approved about nine studies on the use of cannabis. But we had to get the the product from the University of Mississippi. We needed the DEA involved. We need the National Institute of Drug Abuse involved. So the answer is it can be studied. It's a little more challenging to study given its current status, uh, but it already has been widely studied. If you go to clinicaltrials.gov, there have been over 30,000 studies on marijuana. Okay, let's talk now about um, teenagers and uh, marijuana exposure. Uh, can uh, ha- Has there been demonstrated a link between mental illness and marijuana use in, in teens? Absolutely. Uh, and that's kind of the, you know, the, these are, these are the, our most vulnerable population, not only the in utero exposures, infants, toddlers, and young children. Um, across the country, as states legalize, they start to see an increase in poison control calls to, for young children that are getting a hold of grandma's brownies, cookies, and candies. Um, but once you hit the adolescent population, uh, yes, there is there's evidence. If you look at the youth risk behavior survey, uh, the number one predictor for adolescent opioid misuse is having ever used marijuana. And that that kind of goes to the potential gateway theory that we talked about earlier. Um, marijuana currently is the number one substance found in completed teen suicide in Colorado. And that never used to be the case. It used to be alcohol. Um, and it, there's probably a bi-directional relationship. I mean, are they depressed because they're using or are they using because they're depressed? It's hard to say, uh, and it's hard to prove one way or the other, but I think it probably can go both ways. But at the end of the day, that's what, that kids that complete suicide here in Colorado, that is the most prevalent substance found twice as much as number two, which is alcohol. So, but it never used to be that way. So I think with normalization, mass production, commercialization, advertising, kids are going to experiment more with it and they're going to run into problems. They're not overdosing from their cannabis use, but there can be a negative mental health impact with, you know, depression, suicidality. And when I published my paper on emergency room visits, it was very heavy in uh, mental health issues. Uh, Sam Wong, who was one of my uh, authors, actually uh, published some papers that over time uh, during this legalization phase in Colorado, the number of adolescents going to the emergency room went up every single year with 70% of that being psychiatric events. So you're talking about suicide attempt, suicidality or behavior, ideation, um, panic attack, uh, paranoia, et cetera, psychosis. Oh, huh. And the youngest person that my colleagues saw with cannabis psychosis was nine years old oh. here in Colorado. Oh, gosh. What's the prognosis for a youngster like that? Um, oh, terrible. Um, you know, because what they're seeing, the problem that we have, I think, not only in Colorado, but across the country is uh, terrible access to mental health care and treatment. 
And we do know there is a, a, a real link between a negative mental health effects and cannabis use. And, you know, I'm going to use cannabis psychosis as an example. I mean, several of my colleagues in Colorado, some, when these kids become psychotic, it doesn't just wear off within hours. Sometimes it can persist for weeks on end. And they will have patients literally in the emergency room for two or three weeks at a time waiting for psych placement. And they are still actively psychotic, even though their drug tests may be negative at this point. They can be actively psychotic. And sometimes you just can't uncross the bridge. A small percentage of, of people that, that convert to bipolar, mania, mania, or even schizophrenia, sometimes that just that's what you got. You can't uncross the bridge. So I, I think the prognosis is really poor for those kids. I think we need to have better mental health care and treatment across the country, especially when, you're, when you throw a, a substance that is clearly related to mental health problems. Uh, I mean, it's not just cannabis. I mean, all other substances can, can be related to uh, negative mental health, uh, but the mental health care placement and treatment uh, and care is just abysmal in the U.S., as far as I know and, and understand. And yeah, and I don't know the success rate of even when they do get treatment, but it's not a hundred percent. It's not a hundred percent. There's recidivism. There's um, you know regression. There's you know just like any other substance, they they can fail and they can end up going down the same pathway. And I, I I've met more moms and dads that have lost a child to uh, homelessness, uh, drug overdoses. Uh, murder, suicide, and it all stemmed from their initial early onset cannabis use. Wow. Suicide. I mean, John uh, Laura Stack is one of my heroes. I call her Shiro. Um, she lost her son Johnny to suicide related to cannabis psychosis at the age of nineteen. Oh. And he's he's not an N of one. Uh, he's an N of many. Sure. Well, and talk to us a little bit about accidents and vehicle deaths um, because teens are driving when they're high and uh, what are you seeing in terms of of that kind of thing oh that's you know once you normalize and and have these things available um, you're gonna see more of it and I think in Colorado there have been an in, there has been an increase in marijuana related driving fatalities uh, and if you look at the um, if the, the the Rocky Mountain High Intensity Drug Trafficking Area report over time, uh, the number of marijuana-related fatalities has gone up every year. And if you look at the ones that are just marijuana only, it's about a third of the marijuana fatalities. So again, here we go to the societal costs. And so I, I believe in 2018, we had 230, um, no, we had 118 marijuana marijuana related fatalities and i think that year colorado made about 240 million dollars in tax revenue but this the sociology information that i understand just for round numbers is about a million now it's probably 1.5 million dollars for any traffic fatality that include you know it doesn't matter if it's it's a substance or you know distracted driving or you fall asleep at the wheel uh, but if you have $1.5 million per driving fatality and you had we had 118, that's $177 million loss. That goes in the loss column. Um, and that year we made $242 million or something along those lines. So that that delta between profit and loss 
continues to get narrow, more narrow over time when you start adding in these societal costs. And some of the societal costs are completely intangible. We, we don't know what the cost of the wear and tear on the police vehicle is to p- patrol the cartels and illegal grow homes that are across the street. Sure. Et cetera. Yeah. The cost of a, the loss of one of our young people who could have contributed to, sci- to society, the loss of a young mother or father, the, the loss of potential of these people is just absolutely heartbreaking. Um, I I heard of a study out of Harvard that said that one of the effects on the teen brain is impairment of uh, assessment of risk. And uh, that would seem to account for a lot of, of uh, accidents that would be caused because the youngster can't uh, assess risk. And certainly... You know, the eligibility for the military in that case is very disturbing. (laughs) Well, of course it is. And I think, you know, when the brain is developing, the part of the brain that is risk assessment is what we call the prefrontal cortex. You know, we all survived adolescence and we all of us have made some terrible choices while we were an adolescent. And the reason is because that part of the brain that says, hey, it's really wet outside and the roads are very slick. So maybe I shouldn't be driving 90 miles an hour uh, on the highway. Um, That isn't developed yet. And then you have a substance that might, you know, that's just in general, but then you have a substance that may further impair that part of the brain or delay its development or impact that part of the brain. Um, Their risk assessment is going to be poor as well. Uh, There was another study, um, that they followed New Zealand children through middle life um, that maybe started in early, um, you know, like between 12 and 17 years of age, so early onset marijuana use. And they followed them until about 45 years of age. And they had an over 90% retention rate based on survey. And, you know, taking into account like tobacco use, alcohol use, et cetera, they still found that the cannabis users had a drop in IQ about five and a half points compared to the ones that did not use cannabis. So, and, and they actually had smaller uh, volumes of an area of the brain that modulates memory called the hippocampus. So they had smaller areas of the brain regarding memory. Um, they had a loss of IQ of five and a half points uh, compared to their, um, the, the non-users of the same age. Uh, and, you know, if, if you might be old enough to remember I am when they took lead out of lead-based paints because it, it dropped your IQ by four points. Um, and so here's a substance that has clearly demonstrated IQ loss and impacts to the brain that are long-term, but nobody's talking about this. Nobody's connecting these dots because I think this industry has become too big, too powerful, too much money, deep pockets, and they can influence state legislators. Here in Colorado, the lobbyists for the cannabis users actually didn't disclose their cannabis affiliation half of the time, 50% of the time, 48% of the time to be, to get down to the numbers. Um, and they actually use methods to kind of hide their cannabis contributions. So this is big money. This is big politics. Um, and at the end of the day, from my perspective as a physician, this is a huge public health and safety concern. Yeah. Well, and I heard of a study out of uh, Scandinavia that um, looked at 
uh, teens who had had moderate um, cannabis use, which was three joints a week, they've they followed them to age sixty there in Scandinavia, and they were forty percent light more likely to die of an accident, even when they uh, quit using after they reached adulthood. So that um, teen use of cannabis um, made them more likely, 40% more likely to die in an accident lifetime. I read that paper. I'm not, I'm not really surprised. Uh, again, that's why it's very important that, to delay onset of use until the brain is fully developed. And, you know, it, it's funny that you're saying smoking three joints a week. Here in Colorado, based on the Healthy Kids Colorado survey data, the ones that are reporting using marijuana, although the, the rates have not gone up a lot, I think the kids are starting, I think kids these days are smarter than when I was at that age. They're more savvy. Um, the, use, the use rates are not going up, which is good. Um, my, my friends that are educators are telling me that the kids are, the light bulb was going on with the kids here in Colorado that, hey, this is not, this is potentially a dangerous substance and they're using kind of this, it's static, but the ones that are using 70% are use, doing a behavior that I mentioned earlier called dabbing. Um, and dabbing is vaporizing, vaporizing a very high potency product. And I'm talking the ones that are 85, 90% THC, they're dabbing this high potency stuff. Um, and we know that in the European data, they consider anything high potency more than 10% THC. Wow. But these 70% of the kids in Colorado that are that are using marijuana are actually dabbing these high potency products. And again, I believe we're in uncharted waters. We don't know what the even the short, medium, and long-term out, outcome is going to be with these kids. And the industry is taking advantage of this window when we don't know, when we're still gathering data. Uh, to get as many addicts as they can. Yeah, this is Big Tobacco 2.0. Uh, they are following the same playbook as tobacco. You, and you may know that, you know, huge big tobacco companies like Altria have invested millions and millions of dollars in the cannabis industry. And so why is that? Why is tobacco so heavily invested in cannabis? Well, they want lifelong customers. You know, they, 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 will, they will create, you know, attractive products for children until they get their hands slapped. Uh, by the states or the government saying, you know, you should, shouldn't have attractive products for children. Uh, they don't care. Uh, they want lifelong customers, just like Big Tobacco did. The kids that are using electronic cigarettes are more likely to vaporize cannabis. Uh -huh. Sure. Well, and, and uh, I, there are those in the food and beverage industry, I think, that are dab dabbling in looking at introducing cannabis as an ingredient, a food ingredient. Absolutely. Um, do you know if uh, parents, people involved in the marijuana industry and lobbying for it, and these other industries who are getting into it and promoting it, do, do you know if they let their own children and uh, relatives, young adults in their lives consume it? Do they encourage that? with their own families? Do they have medical marijuana licenses or, you know, provide it to their I don't kids? Know the I don't know the answer to that question. I would be more surprised if they did not want their children using. Um, just on a, on a personal note, we had a, a friend of ours 
son or daughter, child, um, you know, they had some issues during adolescence, 15, 16 years old, left the house to stay with their boyfriend or girlfriend uh, whose parents were very open with their marijuana use. And instead of a bowl of fruit on the table, they had a bowl of edibles, marijuana edibles. And it was like free for all. Take what you want. The parents didn't care. Um, and that's just on a personal note. So um, I'm sure it happens. Uh, there, there may be some parents that are actively involved in this in this space that do not recommend their kids use. I don't know if there's any data or numbers to that, uh, but I would be more surprised if they said don't use being an activist compared to it's fine, it's okay if you use. And again, if here in Colorado, you can get your medical marijuana card in a matter of a minute, and you can be 18 years of age, no parental consent. You can still be in high school at age of 18. And then become the school drug dealer. That that's what happened to Johnny. He was 18, got his medical marijuana card, and he was still in high school. He was making a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It would seem, especially when it's so potent now that um, they can get their own medical needs, whatever they may be, met, and still have plenty left over to d- dispense to friends and people on the street. Well, the question is, what are their true medical needs? Um, you know, for an 18 year old to have chronic, to have chronic back pain, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, pain is the most common reason people have medical marijuana cards here in Colorado, most, uh, most likely because of back or neck pain. You know, what 18 mm-hmm. year old has chronic back pain? Very, very small numbers, very small percent. Um, and my, my sensation in trying to talk about it as a policy matter with the electorate uh, because marijuana use does impair your your ability to assess risk, I, I feel like the electorate just isn't grasping the risk because half of them are using marijuana. <laughs> it's hard to convince people of risk if they're already using, and uh, that's distorted in their brains. They're not realizing the importance of of the the risk that they're you know exposing children to the risk to our society the risk to our national readiness in our military the risk in operating uh, the various machinery and industries that we have electronics aviation automobiles everything uh, it just doesn't seem like anybody's saying oh yes i see Maybe this would be fun to use, but it just isn't safe. Correct. What I, what I, I, do, I have worked with a lot of state legislators across the country more recently in this space. And what I tell them is that when Colorado, our Oregon, Washington, and, Cal, and California went down this road, we had what I would describe as unintended consequences. We didn't realize the ease of access to youth, the driving impaired fatalities, the the impact on the healthcare system, et cetera. Now, what I tell these states that are going down this road, you cannot claim ignorance. You know exactly what is coming. Just look at these states that have already gone mm-hmm. down this road. And every all states tell me, well, we'll do it better. And so far, not one state has done it better. None of them. So you will have intended consequences. Yeah, we're going into it with our eyes open now. And... Uh... Just the emergency, you mentioned the emergency room visits at the outset that have gone up. Um, 
that are related to uh, exposure to marijuana are those in, in children are those um, things that they uh, like edibles that they got hold of and then they became what unconscious or psychotic or what were the ER visits connected with those? Uh, usually they, they have difficulty breathing, especially the young children between zero and five. They do not metabolize cannabinoids as well as the adult does. Mm-hmm. Um, currently, my understanding is that ca- cannabinoids are now the most common ingestant in the zero to five age population compared to, you know, kids always put stuff in their mouth. Um, but about 4% of those zero to five-year-olds end up on a ventilator. Uh, so they they have difficult, they're hard to wake up, they're hard to arouse, their breathing can be shallow, uh, they may not be oxygenating as well uh, because of their shallow breathing. And again, about 4% of these kiddos end up on a ventilator. Oh so this gosh. is not That's a benign horrible. substance. Uh, I don't care what anybody tells me, it carries risk. Yes. Uh, if you go to, if you go to, I mean, like I said earlier, we have dronabinol has been around since 1986, which is a synthetic THC. And if you look at the package insert, I mean, the starting dose is 2.5 milligrams. I think the maximum daily dose is 25 milligrams. And if you look at the package insert on warnings and precautions, I mean, you know, don't use or use with caution in somebody with a history of mental illness uh, because it could precipitate psychosis. And so you're looking at 2.5 to 25 milligrams of THC. I have patients routinely tell me they take 5,000 milligrams of THC, 7,000 milligrams of THC. These are, and then the getting to the dabs and waxes and shatters, they're ingesting or vaporizing, inhaling huge, tremendous numbers of, of THC. You're talking about 8,000, 10,000 milligrams of THC potentially in some cases if they're dabbing several times a day. Mm-hmm. You know, I heard of a, study in which people were asked if you had a choice between uh, spending the last seven years of your life in mental illness when you were not in touch with reality or just having a seven year shorter life 98 or 99 percent chose having a shorter life they would rather be dead than be mentally ill and out of touch and yet, we are exposing our children and youth to this risk voluntarily. And it, to me, it is infuriating. And it, it is such an indictment of our consciences and our sense of our future. And uh, with uh, the... The prospect, if, if there were just a risk of something permanently damaging my child's brain that I could avoid, how would I not do that? What has happened to the heart and the soul of the electorate, Dr. Finn? I, I agree with you 100%. And, you know, this really is not a partisan issue because I've been, I've been, people ask me about that, you know, which side do I, I, I sit on it? To me, it does not matter. It's not a partisan issue. It's a public health and safety issue at the expense of our kids. And, and that's been my biggest frustration because they don't ca- the industry doesn't care about these young children, although they will falsely state that they do care about these children. Um, but at the end of the day, the industry as a whole wants these kids uh, to be lifelong consumers. 
because they're just going to make a lot of money out of it. And the, and the the state leaders are following suit. I mean, just look at John Boehner, for example. Everybody knows who he is. He he jumped ship, and now he's uh, an executive at a huge cannabis corporation. Hmm. I did not know that. Well, right. It, it's not a partisan issue to me. It's about money, and it's about our future. Well, I thank you so much for working in the important area of pain management. It's it's something that seems to be um, a national, uh, you know, challenge right now, dealing with pain. And, and I would love to have a whole other conversation about all the other legitimate ways that you treat it. But thank you so much for addressing this in your state and nationwide and internationally and giving us insight into it. Is there anything you'd like our audience to hear that you haven't gotten to say? Oh boy, there's so much that we can go into and there's so much we didn't even touch upon. I mean, this this is a the, the issue is broad and deep. Um, but from, you know, having worked in this arena for so long, it, it really has boiled down to the public health and safety of our our communities, our schools, our roads, our healthcare system and particularly our children. Um, because the messaging these kids are getting that it's safe, it's medicinal, it's herbal, it's natural um, is really a, um, I'm, I'm trying to think of the right analogy. It's it's misinformation uh, to these kids. But again, I think as these kids getting older, the ones that I've been working with and talking to, they're a lot smarter than I was at that age. and they're, And they know much more about this issue than we give them credit for. So I, I think that uh, we, you just have to keep the message going that this is just not good health and safety policy. And we have to start the educational process, on, sadly, in elementary school. Because um, you know, I think that the kids are learning now over time, but they're older. But I think if you hit those kids and educate them early on in their age that they um, – uh, they might get the message and they, hopefully we'll see less users out there. And, and we have to rein in this industry, put some guardrails and caps. Like I mentioned earlier, the, the Delta 8, the Delta 10, the THCO, HHC, THCPs that are they're being found in schools across the country. Um, and they're dangerous. They, you know, we didn't have time to talk about the contamination and the, the, all the stuff, the poisons, the heavy metals they're finding in products in the country. The mislabeling that's going on, the 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 labs that are purposely faking test results just to make a buck. Uh, I mean, it's just a powerful money grabbing industry at the expense of our communities. Well, that's sinister indeed, and uh, I thank you for bringing all this to to our attention on Conversation Balloons. And uh, thank you, and I hope that uh, you have great success there and. Uh, Colorado and wish us the best of luck in Oklahoma. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Finn. Thanks for listening to Conversation Balloons. Look for more episodes and information at leahfarish.com. That's L-E-A-H-F-A-R-I-S-H.com. And follow me on Facebook and Instagram. <laughs>